Hello and welcome to Valley West Cinemas. I'm your host Aaron, and this is the podcast where we take a group of related films and eliminate all but three. I have my list and my red pen ready because today we're discussing the films released after September 11th. This episode was suggested to me as an idea because it is kind of an interesting or curious thing to think about. What movies were we going to see in the shadow of tragedy? The United States and of course the world did change quite a lot after the events of 9-11, and those first few weeks in particular were a very, very strange and difficult time. But life continues. The world kept going, and that includes movies. Movies still came out. Some movies had shots of the World Trade Center edited and removed from the films. Some movies, like Collateral Damage, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, was delayed several months because no studio wanted to release a movie about terrorism. And that in itself is another thing to think about, because up until 9-11, our idea of terrorists in cinema was usually Hans Gruber in Die Hard. And then once we realized what terror was, everything changed. A Schwarzenegger movie about a fireman whose family dies in a bombing was not something people wanted to see in a month after 9-11, you know? There was a movie with Jackie Chan where he was going to play a window washer at the Trade Center, and that, of course, was canceled. The entire ending of Men in Black 2 had to be redone. Originally, the film ended with the Trade Center opening and splitting in half and an alien fleet coming out. At the time of the disaster, there were films like Rush Hour 2, The Others, Jeepers Creepers, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Two Can Play That Game. Those movies were already in theaters, but for today's episode, we'll be discussing the first 15 new movies that came out after 9-11. The films we'll be discussing today are Hardball, The Glass House, Glitter, Megiddo, The Omega Code 2, Don't Say a Word, Zoolander, Hearts in Atlantis, Training Day, Serendipity, Joyride, Max Keeble's Big Move, Bandits, Corky Romano, Iron Monkey, and Mulholland Drive. My first reaction looking at this list is, a lot of these movies have been forgotten. Nobody talks about quite a number of these. The first number one film after 9-11 was Hardball, and it was number one for two weeks. This is the Keanu Reeves movie where he plays the coach of an inner city baseball team. The overall box office was down in the first few weeks after 9-11 because people's moods weren't quite there yet. You know, they weren't ready to see movies. It took a few weeks for any real bona fide hits, but Hardball did do well. Some entertainment trades made a big deal out of the first number one movie afterwards to be about baseball, to be about America's pastime, that we would fall back on baseball when we needed something to distract us from what was going on. And the movie itself is good. As mentioned, I do feel it is a bit of a forgotten film. No one really ever talks about Hardball. This was two years after The Matrix, and Keanu Reeves was still trying to leverage his fame from that movie. It is a little sad that it's sort of been forgotten because it's a good movie. It makes you feel good. It really does. It's kind of like the Mighty Ducks without the Disney silliness. They never go the slapstick pratfall route like Mighty Ducks does, but the storyline is very Mighty Ducks. It's very Bad News Bears. Diane Lane is in it, and I love Diane Lane. She's always great. The only odd thing, and it's not a complaint at all, really, is that it's strange to see Keanu Reeves play normal, to see him play just a normal guy. I like Hardball, though. I do. I really do like Hardball, and I am hanging on to it for now. The other movie that came out that same weekend was The Glass House. Does anybody remember The Glass House? It's a thriller starring Lily Sobieski, which is one of those names that I have not heard in a very long time. There was a brief period of time where she was becoming a name actress where she headlined films. Her name was above the title on the poster. They were trying to make her a thing. She mostly got famous just because she posed in her underwear when she was 14 in a Tom Cruise movie. That was what made her famous. 
The Glass House is about two orphans whose parents die under mysterious circumstances. It's not great. I do miss these sort of mid-budget to low-budget thrillers. It's essentially what would be a streaming movie at this point. Movies like this really just don't go to theaters anymore, and it's kind of sad. On its own, though, The Glass House is not that good. I'm crossing that off. Lily Sobieski is on this list elsewhere, though. She was also in a movie called Joyride. Joyride also has Paul Walker and Steve Zahn. It's a good movie. It was written by J.J. Abrams, who went on to do, of course, Lost, Felicity, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, the Star Trek reboot. It's about three friends going on a drive for summer break or spring break, and they decide to play a prank on a trucker using a CB radio, and the trucker decides to take his revenge. The movie is very much inspired by Steven Spielberg's Duel, which, if you have not seen, I absolutely recommend. Duel is fantastic. In Joyride, what they do is they keep the trucker in shadows. You only hear his voice. It's very dark. It's very ominous. What makes Joyride really cool is that you take these spring break party college kids and you put them in a tense, serious situation and they react in a realistic fashion. They don't keep cracking jokes. They take it seriously. They freak out. It's treated with maturity. It makes a lot out of a very simple concept of a trucker essentially stalking people in a car. And when you watch it, you can see why Paul Walker became famous. He may not have been the greatest actor, but he had presence. If you are interested in watching the film, I will say that there's not a whole lot of horror or kills. It's not like a slasher movie. It is a stalker movie, if that clarification makes sense. It is a simple B-movie straight-to-video concept. It's the kind of thing you would see at Redbox, you know? But it's made very well with characters that are likable. I'm hanging on to it for now, but likely it's going to get crossed off. But for now, it's safe. I'll keep it for now. The next two movies came out together on the same weekend, and they are both notoriously bad. Glitter and Megiddo, or Megiddo. I might be saying that wrong. It's M-E-G-I-D-D-O. Megiddo? Megiddo? Either way, they're both pretty bad. (laughs) Glitter is, of course, the Mariah Carey movie, and it is a notorious bad movie. It has a terrible score on IMDb, like a 2.7. Weirdly, it's a period piece. I have no idea why it takes place in the 80s, and they never do anything with the setting, and you might even not even realize that it's supposed to take place in the 80s. It's not a good movie. Mariah Carey, I don't know. She was good in Precious. The thing with Glitter is it's not actually that bad. I think its reputation for being a horrible film comes more from how much of a financial disaster it was, and that Mariah Carey is not an actress. It's not good. It's not good at all. It's not even bad good. It's not one of those movies where you can sit back and laugh at it. There is no joy in watching and laughing at glitter. It's not as terrible as its reputation has made it out to be, but it's definitely not good. It is not a good movie. Its storyline is essentially a star is born. Not even essentially. It is. It's a star is born. It's just a ripoff of a star is born. It absolutely deserves to be disliked, but I wouldn't say it deserves to be hated. As for Megado, the Omega Code 2, It's a Christian science fiction film, which is a weird combination. There are a lot of Christian-themed horror movies, all of those exorcism films especially, but this is actually a Christian-made film. So even though it's a relatively dark science fiction film, it is thematically more in line with those movies such as Heaven is for Real or I Still Believe. And it's a curious film. It's weird. I kind of like the first Omega Code, but don't get me wrong, both of these movies are bad. Both Omega Code 1 and 2 are really bad films, but they are, unlike Glitter, enjoyably bad. You can have a good time with them, you can laugh at them, and taking Christianity and making science fiction with it is very strange. That's a weird combination, and that alone almost makes them worth seeking out. Part 2 does have better reviews than Part 1. The acting is so hammy. 
So the storyline for part two is the president of the United States is trying to stop his evil brother, who is essentially Lucifer, from taking over the world. It's so cheesy. It's schlock. Schlock is a great word for it. And there is joy to be had with schlock, so maybe you might like it. The film has no idea what it wants to be, though. I think Megiddo needed to decide if it wanted to be hard sci-fi, hard Christianity, camp, or thriller. It could have been something. It could have been one of these. If they really doubled down on the camp, then it could have been very interesting and very funny. If they'd gone a little harder with the faith or the science fiction, then it could have been a more thoughtful film, maybe. Since the film doesn't really know what it wants to be, though, it falls more in line with the bad good. It's not a good film at all, but because it's bad, it's kind of enjoyable. If you're in the mood for some schlock, check it out. I can't keep it. It's not good bad enough for me to get a laugh out of it. So I'm crossing off Megiddo, the Omega Code 2, and Glitter. The next one is nearly a classic and is definitely a contender for one of the three surviving films, and that is Zoolander. What can I say about Zoolander? It's one of those weird movies where it has become so popular and held on for so long over time that people don't even remember that there's a sequel. (laughs) Nobody talks about Zoolander 2. Zoolander 1 still comes up in conversation, and people have kind of quietly ignored and or forgotten that there's a Zoolander 2. Zoolander 1, though, I still like it. The movie did edit all shots of the World Trade Center out of the movie. Paramount Pictures didn't feel that, in a comedy setting, people should be reminded of what had just happened only three weeks prior. Zoolander came out 17 days after 9-11. There's a movie studio called Troma that makes bad-on-purpose movies. Their logo includes the silhouette of the Trade Center, and they refused to take it out. They are a New York-based company, so they were there when it happened. And they keep, to this day, the Trade Center in their logo. So it's hard to say what people would or would not be in the mood for. I kind of think Paramount probably had the right idea at the time. Only 17 days later, you probably don't want to go into a comedy and be reminded of what was going on, what was still going on. As for Zoolander, I think it is better now than when it was new. And what I mean by that is that over time, at least my appreciation for it has grown. I didn't love it when it first came out, but as the years have gone on, it's become a better movie to me. I love the part (laughs) with the center for the ants (laughs) when he's showing a model of a school and he doesn't realize it's a model. That's still funny. There is one iffy part of the movie, though, where in today's eyes, it looks kind of like a really bad race joke. I don't know if this is what they meant. But other than that, I do think Zoolander is incredibly funny. I like Zoolander. I am hanging on to it. I am going to cross off Hearts and Atlantis. We did discuss this movie with Tara very briefly in the Stephen King episode. This is one where Anthony Hopkins in like the 1950s, I believe, he plays a man who has psychic powers and he ends up befriending a very, very young Anton Yelchin, who I miss a lot. He was a great actor and he died way too young. One very strange thing is that while the book is called Hearts in Atlantis, it consists of five separate stories that are connected by a couple different characters. The story that is called Hearts in Atlantis is not the story that was adapted for the movie. It's very confusing. They cut a lot out because the character that Anthony Hopkins plays is connected to the Dark Tower universe, and all of the Dark Tower references are cut out of the movie. A lot of the book is kind of anti-Vietnam. None of Vietnam is in the movie. It has nothing to do with it. And so the story they ended up doing is kind of this pre-teen coming-of-age thing that's just not that interesting. Anthony Hopkins is actually kind of bad in it. The story is super obvious. King has written Coming of Age well before with both It and Stand By Me, but Hearts in Atlantis is not good. The next one I'm crossing off is Don't Say a Word, which was a pretty big hit when it came out. It also has become largely forgotten. 
Does anybody remember Don't Say a Word? Is that a movie that people own? Is that somebody's favorite movie? I have no idea. But it was a hit when it came out. It has Brittany Murphy, who I miss a lot. She also died way too young. And Michael Douglas as a psychiatrist who is blackmailed into finding out some secret code that Brittany Murphy knows. Sean Bean is a bad guy in it because of course he is. Because until Game of Thrones, Sean Bean was always a bad guy. You can look up YouTube videos of all the movies that Sean Bean has been killed in. Because he dies in everything. With Brittany Murphy's death, we have her whole filmography to choose other better performances from. I would rather revisit Clueless any day over this. Now, it's not bad. It's just, don't say a word, has not aged well. Visually, the whole movie is just the color blue. And this was Michael Douglas in his post-erotic era, because from like 1987 to 1995, Michael Douglas was in a whole bunch of erotic thrillers. It's watchable. If you have a thing for late 90s, early 2000s thrillers, then sure, yeah, watch Don't Say a Word. It's not a bad film by any means, it's not. But we have two decades of better films that have come out since then. The next one is Training Day, and what can I say about Training Day other than it's awesome. Training Day is such a good movie. It is not a happy movie though, but Denzel Washington, this was his first villain role, and it makes sense that he won his Oscar for it because he is great. Ethan Hawke is good in it too, but nobody remembers Ethan Hawke. Nobody remembers that he's in this movie. We only remember Denzel. It was made by David Ayer, who would later go on to do Fury and Suicide Squad and End of Watch. And Training Day is a dark film, but because of Denzel and Ethan Hawke, I think it's never depressing. Denzel is one of those anti-heroes back before anti-heroes became popular. If you break it down, though, and watch the film, he really is kind of just a bad guy. He might think he's justified, but he's a bad guy. And man, Denzel is good. He sells it so well. There's a reason people remember his line, King Kong ain't got nothing on me. It's a great moment. And what's great about Denzel and his character is that you believe him, you believe what he's saying, and he believes that he's right. Watching this character do these things and just completely believe that no matter how wrong it is, that he is doing the right thing, that these things are necessary. And that's usually how you would describe a good villain, but he thinks he's the good guy. And that's what makes it compelling. It's a dark, unflinching movie, and I'm keeping training day, and it is more than likely going to survive at the end of this episode. The next few are pretty easy for me to cross off. Max Keeble's Big Move, Bandits, and Corky Romano. Corky Romano, oh boy. <laughs> Corky Romano is interesting because it's a mob comedy, and it's about a veterinarian whose family is in the mafia, and they ask him to go undercover as an FBI agent. And so the movie was advertised as Corky Romano Special Agent, with the word special meaning the other way we sometimes say that a person is special. And you can't ignore that, despite the filmmakers' claim that they got the name Corky from an actual mobster who lived, Corky was also famously the name of a character with Down syndrome on the show Life Goes On, and it kind of entered pop culture. And so if you release a film called Corky Romano Special Agent, uh, I mean, you can't deny the joke they're trying to make. It would never, ever fly now. As a film, it's not very funny. Corky is played by Chris Kattan from Saturday Night Live and A Night at the Roxbury. I have liked him a lot. He was good, actually, in House on Haunted Hill, of all things. He is very good at physical comedy. There are about three minutes of him that are actually kind of funny, but it's three minutes in an otherwise very unfunny film. And I'm even drawing a blank trying to come up with any mob comedies that are funny to begin with, other than Married to the Mob. So I'm crossing that off. I'm crossing off Bandits. Bandits is a dramedy sort of comedy with Billy Bob Thornton and Bruce Willis as bank robbers. The movie itself isn't based on a true story, but they do take the idea of something that really did happen where the bank robbers go to the bank manager's house the night before 
kidnap them, and have them take them to the bank before they open to rob it. In the movie, they end up carjacking Kate Blanchett, who plays a crazy woman who kind of latches onto them and starts hanging out with them and wanting to rob banks with them. It's not good. It's weird. The tone is off. I don't buy the Kate Blanchett character, why she wants to be with them, and she kind of falls in love with both Billy Bob Thornton and Bruce Willis. It was directed by Barry Levinson, who, despite doing Rain Man and Wag the Dog, has pretty much been on a losing streak since 98. He hasn't really made many good movies since then, unfortunately. It's too long. But also, it's almost like an anti-comedy. They're trying to be quirky, but they're failing so spectacularly. A movie like Bandits doesn't really have jokes. Its humor comes from trying to be quirky. When you watch it, you can tell which parts are meant to be funny, but then you just sort of grimace, and it (laughs) ruins the whole experience of watching the film. So I'm crossing off Bandits. The other one I'd grouped in was Max Keeble's Big Move. It's kind of a fun idea, and it's actually about repercussions, which is kind of neat in a kid's film. So in the movie, Max Keeble is told that he's moving, and so he uses his last day at school to actually stand up to all the bullies, to do all the things that he never had the nerve to do. Big, bold gestures like food fights and challenging the principal. And then he's told that they're not moving, and he actually has to live with the consequences of his actions. That's kind of fun. That's kind of a fun idea. The movie exists in this sort of hyper-child reality, so it's not meant to be realistic. And as such, as an adult, it's kind of hard to watch. If you're over 12, you may as well probably not bother. It's not the worst, but it's definitely for kids. There are much, much, much worse films out there. If you have a young one, throw it on. I will go as far as to say Max Keeble's Big Move is not a bad movie, but at my age, I cannot watch it anymore. (laughs) I can't. I'm sorry. So I do have to cross it off. The next one is Serendipity, which is a romantic comedy with John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale. Both of those actors have had interesting careers. I miss John Cusack. He is a good actor. If you haven't seen High Fidelity or Say Anything, and I'm sure I'm forgetting several other films like, oh, Con Air. Con Air is a fun, dumb movie. After The Raven, which I think might have been his last theatrical film, he sort of fell into those straight-to-video doldrums like Van Damme and Nicolas Cage. I don't understand or know really quite what happened to John Cusack. I miss John Cusack. He is good in Serendipity. Both of the leads are very charming. I actually like Kate Beckinsale in this, and she usually is not really that good. But here's the issue with Serendipity. The beginning is great, and it takes place at Christmas time in a pre-9-11 New York. So you have these two characters who meet cute over a pair of gloves at a department store. They spend a perfect night together. Kate Beckinsale believes in fate, and so when a gust of wind blows her phone number out of John Cusack's hands, she takes it as a sign that they're not meant to be. And so they go their separate ways, and then 10 years later... Right before his wedding, he starts to reminisce and wonder if he made a mistake not finding her again. Meanwhile, Kate Beckinsale is also wondering about this perfect night she spent with this one guy. And so the two of them are pining for and essentially looking for each other again after all these years. Part of its problem is that the movie is never better than the beginning. That initial sequence where they meet and hang out, that romance and that charm and that chemistry between those two, the movie never gets that back. The beginning is the best part and it never gets as good as that. But the movie's so lightweight, it's cute, and that feels good. Sometimes that feels good. The story is kind of weak, and as much as I like the two leads, they spend most of the movie apart. John Cusack's character is about to get married. As cute as you make the movie, it still kind of feels like cheating. You're about to get married and you decide to seek out some woman you spent one night with ten years ago. He's about to get married. Uh, that, That feels like cheating. I am crossing off serendipity. If the whole movie was as good as that beginning then I would probably love the movie. There are only two left. I'm going to double back and cross off Joyride. 
And I hate to say it, but I am going to also cross off Hardball. Just to reiterate, Hardball is good. I still have Zoolander and Training Day, and we still have the two films I'm about to talk about. The last two films are Iron Monkey and Mulholland Drive. Iron Monkey doesn't really come up in conversation anymore, unfortunately, but Mulholland Drive is still around. David Lynch, who directed the film, still has a fan base. These are both great films for very different reasons. Iron Monkey stars Donnie Yen, the great Donnie Yen. Most people probably know him in America from Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, or possibly Jet Li's Hero. He plays the parent of a very young Wong Fei Hong. Wong Fei Hong is a historical Chinese figure. Iron Monkey does have a bit of the Jackie Chan, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon style action scenes. It's sped up, yeah, but man, it's awesome to look at. It was directed by Yuan Wuping, who also did the martial arts choreography for The Matrix, Kill Bill, and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. The fighting is awesome. It has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics liked this movie as well. It's a very, very good movie with incredibly original fight sequences. It's fun. It has energy to spare. The story is basically Robin Hood. It's about a physician who dresses up as a character called the Iron Monkey who steals from the rich to give to the poor. The original version of the film, as far as I'm aware, has never been released in the United States because when it came out here, it was edited down to like 81 minutes. A lot of it was sped up even more than it was overseas. In the U.S., it came out with Quentin Tarantino Presents over the title because he is a huge fan of this movie too. I think Iron Monkey is one of the best martial arts movies ever made. I love Iron Monkey. When I do these eliminations, I do try to weigh public opinion. And so if I were to cross off, say, Training Day to keep Iron Monkey, I think a lot of people would feel that I'm just choosing my favorite, which is why I bring up its critical reception, because I'm not the only one that likes Iron Monkey. It is a well-received film. Mulholland Drive is so good. If you like David Lynch, if you like Twin Peaks, he also did Wild at Heart and Blue Velvet. It is an incredible, twisty, mind-blowing film. It's one of those movies where you might not understand it the first time. You might have to go on Wikipedia to have it explained. The movie is about an actress who goes to Hollywood to pursue her dreams, and she ends up meeting a woman who has lost her memory. And they go down, well, I would say a rabbit hole, which is an analogy I've used before. But in this case, it is a literal reference to Alice in Wonderland. They go down the rabbit hole into a world of bizarre personalities, bizarre characters and situations, otherworldliness. It's a great movie. What makes it extra curious is that it started out as a TV show. Mulholland Drive was a TV pilot. It was intended to be a Twin Peaks spinoff. When the network didn't pick it up, David Lynch decided to film some extra footage and just release it as a movie. The movie ended up being a big success, and David Lynch was even nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards. Some people will find the movie very confusing, but this is David Lynch, though. This is what he does. He's more interested in making you feel something than explain it. If you were to ask David Lynch, what his movie means, he would probably respond, what do you think it means? He has no interest in telling you. He has said before in interviews that everything is there. Everything you need to know is there, but it's up to you to interpret it, to figure it out. And that's what makes David Lynch movies so confusing, but also rewarding. To not have everything handed to you, to not have a scene of exposition or text scrolling up on the screen telling you what's about to happen. You have to piece it together yourself. You have to figure it out. That's kind of what made Lost so intriguing, the TV show Lost. That's why it was such a big hit in the beginning. Later, of course, everyone got annoyed because they wanted answers. And to David Lynch, it doesn't matter if you're right or not. And so all of that might be kind of a long-winded way of saying, there's a very strong possibility that you could walk into a David Lynch movie, have no idea what the hell the point was, and really not care. <laughs> and that's fair. And that is perfectly fair as well. Art, like humor, is subjective. 
I am 100% keeping Mulholland Drive. It's a classic. It's amazing. That does leave me with four. Weirdly, I think this is the hardest final four I've ever had. I don't know which one to cut. If I had to come up with reasons to cross these off, I would say Zoolander is kind of dumb. Training Day is kind of unhappy. Iron Monkey is probably not as accessible to as wide an audience. And Mulholland Drive is probably confusing. I think my final criteria will be which are the better movies. Obviously, that's just a matter of opinion. Of these four, I would say there are three of them that are clearly better films. And so I am crossing off Zoolander. And that leaves me with my three. Now playing this week at Valley West Cinemas are Training Day, Iron Monkey, and Mulholland Drive. What do you think? Let us know on Twitter at VWestCinemas. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Podcast. And of course, please rate and review wherever you listen. It helps us a bunch. I'm your host, Aaron. Thank you for listening.